Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. We're breaking away again from our series on the book of Acts. Romans chapter 1, I will begin in verse uh, 14. Let me say that customarily on a Sunday morning in your bulletin, you will have a front and back sermon outline, fill in some of the blanks. I wanted to give you more than that uh, this morning, okay? So out on the round tables as you leave, if you've not picked one up yet, there'll be a four-page summary of the message today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? You'll notice the title of the message on the screens this morning, Should I Be Allowed to Marry Anyone That I Love? Beginning there in verse 14, Paul says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Father, I would pray this morning that you would open our hearts and minds to this passage. 
Lord, give us understanding. Help us to be loving and kind and yet at the same time not afraid of your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me say a number of things before we begin today. And by the way, it'll be somewhat of a a lengthy introduction. Only two points in the message, but don't get excited about that. A lengthy introduction. But some of the things I want to say before we begin. Number one, I'm going to cover a difficult but needed subject matter today that's been much in the news the past few weeks. Some of our people here have asked about it, and some comments have been made. Was anybody here? Were we going to say anything about what's gone on? Uh, One of our parents here of teens commented that he had hoped to hear me say something about it last week. So anyway, that uh, that responsibility happily, gladly falls to me. Uh, Secondly, it's a subject that I covered in part back in April when I covered uh, all of Romans 1, 2, and 3 on that sermon that I preached about the gospel. Now today is not meant to be a repeat or a rehashing of that message. It'll be different, but nonetheless, because chapter 1 is the same, uh, there will be some overlap. I think of what the Apostle Paul said about that. He said, for me to repeat the same matter to you is certainly no burden to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Now, thirdly, I want to say that that my position or our position to same-sex marriage should in no way be interpreted as either hate or hate speech. That is a ridiculous charge. That'd be like having a child, having a son addicted to drugs, and because of the parent's opposition to his actions, those parents being told that they hate their son. In reality, nothing could be further from the truth. Sometimes love says things that people don't want to hear. In fact, I would hold just the opposite position to those who say things like this, or hate or hate speech, Uh, I would assert that it is not the loving thing to do to allow somebody to go down the wrong path without saying a word of opposition to them. Speaking the truth in love is oftentimes a necessary and needful thing. But let it be clear, we don't hate anybody. We hate the sin, but love the sinner as we do with each and every one of us. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that we are not simply against same-sex relationships, but we are for marriage as God created it and ordained it. Everywhere that we think that we know better than God and we try to undo what God has done or said, every time we do something like that, we end up only bringing harm to ourselves and society. We've got to remember Genesis 1. God created the woman for the man and told them to be fruitful and multiply. God created and defined marriage. He ordained it. 
Man can't truly redefine that which God has created and defined. To think that we can redefine what God has defined is the height of human arrogance. When Jesus was asked about the question of divorce in Matthew 19, he, he carried everybody back to what had been said, what God had said from the beginning, how God had created marriage between a man and a woman. Now, if there were other relationships that could qualify as marriage, that would have been an excellent place for Jesus to have added something. But he didn't. And so again, as believers, we are to be for what God has clearly stated. And that should mean that given uh, uh, the, uh, the passage of time, we're not going to change our convictions on this matter, at, at least not if we want to be faithful to the Word of God. Same-sex marriage strikes at the very core of who is in charge. Is man free to redefine things that God has defined? Or is God the real authority? If God is the real authority, time will not change our convictions because the Bible says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, as a church and as Christians in general, let me say to you that we need to be guided by Scripture. We need to be guided by Scripture. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I command you? And on another occasion, He said, Many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That means that only saying that we are believers is insufficient. Our lives are to be built upon the rock, which is the Lord Jesus and His words. Now, our society loves the isms and is built on the isms. For example, secular society loves intuitionism. What do I feel about a matter? They love rationalism. What do I think about a matter? They love existentialism. What has been my experience? But as believers, we are not to be built on the isms of a secular society. We're to be built, I suppose you could say, on a fourth ism, biblicism. What does the Word of God say about the issues of life? You see, the Bible is not just some little nice book that we open it up one time a week on Sunday morning and we read a few verses, we close it, we go home, and we forget about it the rest of the week and it has no bearing on our lives whatsoever. The Bible is meant to be a Christian's guide, to be their anchor, to be their compass for all of life. To call oneself a Christian and to disregard God's Word would be an oxymoron. In fact, in 1923, J. J. Gresham Machem, the great Presbyterian scholar and theologian uh, out of Princeton Seminary from the early 20th century, he went on to found Westminster Theological Seminary because he was concerned about the encroaching liberalism at, at Princeton. 
Machen was respected the world over for his intellect, being a first-rate scholar. He made the comment that liberal Christianity that minimizes the Bible is not Christianity at all. In fact, he said liberal Christianity that memorizes the Bible, not, not minimizes the Bible, is not only uh, not Christianity at all, it is a totally separate religion. That statement comes from one of the greatest theological minds we've ever had in this country. One cannot separate Christianity and the Bible. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul told Timothy that the scriptures were able to make him wise unto salvation. And then after being made wise unto salvation and coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul said, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Word of God leads one to salvation and then leads one on to maturity. Now that means that my motive and your motive and the church's motive should be to be faithful to Scripture. And that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning, as I do on any given Sunday. My purpose as the under-shepherd of the flock here is to simply teach you the Word of God and what the Word of God says. And if I fail to do that, I have failed to do my most basic task and what God has charged me with. And that's why I've said to you before when I preach, you judge what I say against the Bible. And if it for some reason doesn't match up, go with the Bible. Don't go with me. But secondly, point out to me how I've strayed from the Scripture. And if indeed I have, then I'll need to correct myself. But you judge everything I say by the Word of God. Have I been faithful to this? And so the question this morning, when we get done, is have I been faithful to Romans 1? That's the real question. But again, the message this morning in response to the question, Pastor, my friends tell me that anybody should be allowed to marry anyone that they love. Pastor, is that true? What does God's Word say about that? Two things I want to mention this morning. First of all, I want to point out when the gospel is received. When the gospel is received. Pick up reading with me again in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, right off the bat, what Paul is wanting to do here is to set the table. He establishes the wonder of the gospel in these two verses right here. And these two verses will be what Paul fleshes out in the rest of the book of Romans. 
I want you to notice in verse 14 that he views his work in getting the gospel out as an obligation, a debt. Folks, what is it that we owe people? What do we owe society? We have a lot of debts. Society today itself is under great debt. A lot of debts, but what is the chief thing that you and I owe mankind? We owe them the opportunity of hearing the gospel that we have heard and responded to. And that's why we have the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Our greatest debt that we owe is getting the word of God out. We need to understand that in the Old Testament, Israel was elect. They were chosen not simply so they could sit back and enjoy all the privileges that God had given them, but their election was for service so that they could go out and be a light to the nations so that they could be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Paul always saw himself as a debtor to Christ. Not in the sense of buying salvation, that's impossible. But rather as a debtor in terms of his life's calling, his life's work. And in verse 15 he mentions his eagerness to do this. He could not wait to go to Rome because Rome being the capital of the Roman Empire in the first century, it was essentially the capital city of the world. It'd be like somebody saying today, I can't wait to go to Washington, D.C. and I want to preach the gospel there. And by preaching the gospel there, I hope all those politicians in Washington, they will hear the gospel. Some of them will be saved. And if they were saved, think of the ramifications that could have on the entire world. That was Paul's thinking here. And the reason for his eagerness, he states right here in verse 16, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Now folks, unless God opens hearts and minds and eyes, Man doesn't receive this. What does man do? 1 Corinthians 1 says, The Greeks saw the gospel as foolishness and the Jews saw it as a stumbling block. But he goes on to say, To those who are saved, the gospel is the power of God. It's what God uses to point out to us our sin and our need of a Savior. And it tells us who the Savior is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as the gospel is preached, God does what only God can do. God saves some. Martin Luther is one who had this very transformation. He was a monk and he tried to do everything in the Middle Ages to try to earn his own salvation. And then one day he was studying this very passage. And as he was studying this very passage, he said it's like the light bulbs came on in his mind. And he came to faith in Christ. And from then on in Martin Luther's ministry, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 was the very theme verses of his life and ministry. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because it reveals the righteousness of God. Not man's righteousness, but God's righteousness. The righteousness of God is not earned by us. It is imputed to us through faith, faith in Christ. 
God has chosen to reveal himself in the gospel. God's work in the world is wrapped up in the presentation of the gospel. Through the preaching and teaching of the gospel, men learn of their desperate need and of God's glorious provision. You know, there's a lot of talk today that centers on some given topic. But with the gospel, we see a whole nother power at work. As the gospel is preached... God is active. God is the one at work. That's why D.L. Moody, the, the Billy Graham of his day, he once commented that the gospel is like a lion. All that a preacher has to do is open the door of the cage, let the lion out, and jump back out of the way. The gospel points to salvation. Again, what, what is established as the good news is preached? As the good news is preached, God shows us that we're sinners. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And when we come to faith in Christ, the scripture says that we come into a standing of being at peace with God. Previous, we were at odds with God. We were enemies of God, and we were alienated from Him, and we were strangers to the covenants and the promises but after being put in a state of peace with God and all of our sins are forgiven the Bible says we have access into his presence and one of these days the scripture says for those who are saved we're going to see the glorification of our salvation absent from the body present with the Lord no wonder Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The most important message that we could ever share with anybody at any time. That's what's wrapped up in the gospel. No wonder he wasn't ashamed of it. Because the gospel changes lives. As, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what happens when the gospel is received. And oh, if that could always be the case. But secondly, I want you to see this morning when the gospel is rejected. Begin reading with me in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Paul begins by saying that when the gospel is rejected or suppressed, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now at this point, I think we have to say something about wrath. Because you and I naturally tend to think in human categories. And so when we think of wrath, we think of man's wrath. We think of some time in our lives that we've gotten angry about something, we've blown our stacks, and then we've said something or done something that we wish we could have gone back at a later point and corrected. And so when we hear the wrath of God, we think of wrath in human categories like that. That's a huge mistake. 
Because God's wrath is perfectly righteous and holy, just like His love is perfectly righteous and holy. And so when we talk about God's wrath, we are not talking about some kind of celestial temper tantrum. Also, if we have the right picture of God's wrath uh, and, and, and come to understand it, You know, even then, we don't like to relish in it. We'd much rather talk about the love of God. But nonetheless, we're confronted in the Word with the wrath of God as well. Like J.I. Packer says, one of the most striking things about the Bible is the vigor with which both Testaments emphasize the reality and the terror of God's wrath. Arthur Pink wrote, A study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to His love and tenderness. Now once we understand the concept of God's wrath and the frequency with which it is mentioned, we also need to understand something of the Word itself. The word for God's wrath here is not thumos. Thumos is that word in the, in the Greek New Testament that comes from a, a root word that means to rush along fearlessly or fiercely, to be in the heat of violence or to breathe violently. It's like in the Old Testament when God's wrath broke out against them in the wilderness and in one given day, 5,000 of them or 10,000 or 30,000 of them might drop dead in that day. That's an example of God's thumos. But the word used of God's wrath almost every single time in the New Testament and here is not thumos but orge. Now, orge explains that long, patient, slow building up of the righteous anger of God. That God is patient with man, He's patient with man, He's patient with man, and finally He does something about His orge, His his wrath. He deals with man's wickedness and sin. But it's a patient growing. That's the word used here in Romans 1. Now, what are the facts in the case that Paul presents here against the human race? It's not simply a matter of God's wrath being stored up for a later time at the end of the age. Paul says here that there is a present manifestation of it. He uses the present tense here when he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is even now being poured out on an unbelieving world. The wrath of God is not something that is just simply eschatological way out there in the future for the end of time when Jesus comes back now it's going to be displayed then too but he's saying the wrath of God is present even now and the very things that he's going to talk about in this passage the very sins the very vices that men do He gives as evidence or exhibit A that God's wrath is already being poured out on society. 
So it's not to say, is God going to do this? He's pointing out that God is already pouring out His wrath. Some have tried to depersonalize wrath to suggest that it's only the choice and consequent sequence within a moral universe. Now, while it's true that consequences are built into such a universe, it is better here to give wrath its more natural understanding as God's personal, just, and holy response to man's rejection of his truth. It's revealed here, he says, uh, against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, Charles Hodge uh, takes those two terms to mean the wickedness toward God and then wickedness toward men. Cultures that don't have any regard for God very soon after that don't have any regard for man. When you do away with the vertical, it's quick and easy to do away with the horizontal. If you, if you don't value God or don't respect God and don't, don't value His truth, then very soon you also disregard man and human life. It's also against those who, he says here, who suppress the truth. Truth can't be changed because it's God's truth. But what men like to try to do when they hear God's truth, kind of like getting a broom out and sweeping, they kind of want to conveniently raise the edge of the carpet and sweep everything under the carpet, put the carpet back down and hide it. They try to suppress God's truth. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them because God has made it plain. And and that's in the emphatic position here in the verse. How has God made it plain? How has God made himself evident? First of all, he says here, through the human consciousness. God has put a knowledge of himself in us. He's written eternity into our hearts. And then he adds that because that which is known about God is evident in creation, he mentions in verse 20. Listen to what King David said about that in Psalm 19.1. He said, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. And so creation itself is preaching a sermon every day and every night. The sermon it is preaching is about the existence existence of God and the glory of God. Now what is evident about God in creation? First he writes here in verse 20 his invisible attributes. We see design and order in in nature and we know that the God who made all of this is a God of order and beauty. The visible points to an invisible designer. Creation is evidence of a creator. Creation tells us something about God. Verse 20, he goes on to say, it pours out, or it points out rather, his eternal power. We look at the vastness of the universe and we think about the God who made all of this. And surely he must be an awesome God. And indeed he is. Theologians refer to all of this that we experience in creation. The sunshine, the rain, the seasons. Predictability in nature as common grace. And even those who reject God are recipients of His common grace. 
If God wasn't a good God and he didn't hold things in check and in place by his own power, if he didn't sustain everything that he had made, every single day in the universe would be a day of utter chaos. And so again, God makes it known in our conscience. God makes it known in creation to the point that he ends up saying here in verse 20 that what? Men are without excuse. Circle those words. Men are without excuse. He says here they did not honor God as God even though they knew God they did not honor Him as God even though creation itself testifies to the presence of God. They didn't seek God. They didn't give thanks. What's being described here is an attitude of ingratitude. And the result is he says that they become futile in their speculations. Life becomes about them. They become vain and arrogant and puffed up and they forget God. Their heart is darkened, he writes. They become fools. They become idolaters. Folks, we need to understand that man is incurably religious. Everywhere our missionaries go in the deepest, darkest jungles, they find men there trying to worship something. Men become idolaters. Men try to push the true and the living God out of the picture. They try to create their own God, their own religion. Because, boy, I tell you what, religion sure is a lot more convenient that way, isn't it? When I can create my own God that I control instead of the other way around. Now, after stating that believers are presently under the wrath of God, he proceeds to show the evidence of how we know this to be true. Look at what he begins saying here in verse 24. And you'll notice that he doesn't say it just once. He doesn't say it just twice. He says it three times. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. Three times God gave them up. God's restraints are lifted. God's word is light and truth and puts a healthy boundary around life. When his truth is suppressed, God removes the built-in safeguards. The actions of lost people reveal that when they turn their back on God repeatedly, they reach a point that God turns his back on them in order to let them go their own way. Uh, Augustine said the punishment for sin is sin. In other words, God greases the sliding board the direction you want to go. Somebody says, Pastor, would God do that? Well, listen to Psalm 81. God said in Psalm 81, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. Now when God does that, when God gives us over to walk according to our own 
devices. What does that look like? He mentions three things here. Number one, rampant lust. Verse 24 indicates that, that God gives man up to his lust and impurity. And in an exegetical manner, he indicates what the, what the uh, impurity is, namely the dishonoring of our bodies. And so instead of seeing sex as a gift from God within biblical marriage, they dishonor their bodies. And the Bible says sexual sin is, it's described in some of the harshest terms in both the Old and the New Testament because we're created in the image of God. And he said when a man commits sexual sin, he's not only sinning against his neighbor or against God, he's even sinning against his own body. Then God gives him up to degrading passion. As Robert Mounts points out in his commentary on Romans, what occurs at this point is the most complete explanation of homosexual activity mentioned in the New Testament. In the Roman world, homosexuality was accepted and viewed rather casually. William Barclay notes that 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were either homosexuals or bisexuals. It was said of Julius Caesar that he was every woman's man and every man's woman. Now society calls homosexuality and lesbianism simply an alternative lifestyle. Boy, that just sounds so benign, doesn't it? Romans 1 calls it here degrading passions. And the verdict is that he mentions here that men will receive in themselves the penalty for their error. Mounts writes homosexuality as a perversion of God's intended relationship between man and woman carries its own destructive penalty. Now, now he doesn't state what that penalty is, only that there is a penalty, that it's a reality. But again, when men still go their own way re, uh, in regards to suppressing God's truth, God gives them over to these degrading passions what else does God give them over to first of all there's the lust now the passions what's next the depraved mind verse 28 you see when we turn away from light we inevitably go out into darkness. We end up with a depraved mind, a mind that is not functioning as intended. Now the result of the debased mind is not that the person is ignorant. They may be brilliant. They may have a PhD and have a high IQ. But what the depraved mind means is that that individual has lost the ability to think properly about the issues of life or to think with any kind of spiritual or moral clarity. That also explains the frustration you face when you're trying to talk to somebody. And you're trying to show them God's truth that they've suppressed. And God's given them over to a depraved mind. You might as well be beating your head against the concrete. And then in verse 29, he goes on to say they're filled. And he lists 21 vices. The idea of the Greek word here being filled, they've reached a 
point of saturation. He goes on to list 21 things. That was a common practice in ancient literature that you would just start piling up. When you were writing about vices, piling up one vice upon another. Now I want you to notice, not only are they caught up in one or more of these things, but they descend even further. Paul says here they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They celebrate. Now what is the verdict? What's the verdict here? Again, not what do I think, what do I feel, what do you think, what do you feel, what would you like it to say, what does the Scripture say? What does the Bible say here? It says they're without excuse, they're under the wrath of God, and they do not know God. Now, this passage underscores two things. First, it explains all the darkness and decadence we see in society. Suppression of God's truth leads to nothing good, nothing virtuous. God will not be mocked. Secondly, it serves as a warning to any who may think that because of a mere confession of their lips, of their religious belief in Christ, that that means they're safely inside of God's fold. Folks, regardless of one's position and influence in life, he says right here, again, not my words, not your words, the Bible's words, if he engages in or affirms and promotes lifestyles and ways that are contrary to Scripture, then according to Romans 1, he only reveals that he does not know God. The only reason somebody would engage in all this stuff or approve of all this stuff or celebrate all this stuff is because they have rejected God's Word. They do not know God and they've turned out to the darkness. There's not a middle road here. There's not a third way. If we reject God's truth that leads to salvation... One alternative remains, and that's namely that we place ourselves in the position of receiving God's condemnation. Now that should come as no surprise because Jesus himself said that there would be many in that day that stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, and he'd say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. And some of them would say, but we preached in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he says... I never knew you. Now, listen to what I'm about to say, because I promise you some of you will misunderstand this. Okay? But let me finish it after my first sentence, okay? In all likelihood, such persons that he mentions here are beyond salvation. I did not say they couldn't be saved. Because God can certainly save the worst of sinners. You can't out the grace of God. But here's the difference. Paul has described people who know this. They know the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. 
Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The gospel points out our sin and need of a savior. These are people who know that and have put it aside and said, No, I will not embrace that. That's different than somebody really maybe not knowing or understanding this. They hear the gospel preached. They come under conviction. They get saved. This is a person that knows this, hears it, and is adamant in their rejection against it. To be in that position is to place yourself in a very dangerous place. Very dangerous. And furthermore, in the words of Romans 2.5, they're currently storing up wrath for the day of wrath. It's as though deposits are being made into a savings account that will testify against one at the final judgment. As has well been said before, God's wheels may grind slowly, but rest assured they grind surely. Present wrath may be denied, But eschatological wrath will not be escaped or denied. Somebody thinks they can get away with it now, but when they stand before God one day, and everything is stripped away, they will give an account. And also it would do the power brokers of society well to remember that Scripture affirms that those in positions of authority who lead others astray will receive a more severe condemnation. Folks, if we were to stop reading the book of Romans right here, all would be lost. Because here, God's truth is suppressed. God's wrath begins being poured out. There's an accelerating downhill run set in motion in society with only one outcome, and that one outcome being eternal catastrophe. But as Romans goes on to explain, the only solution is intervention, God's free and unmerited grace. Because Christ has already taken the wrath of God against sin for those who cry out to Him in repentance and faith. He alone is our hope. He alone is our hope. So as we preach the gospel and men here, we pray for God to, to remove the veil from their eyes. And, and, and if God should do that in somebody again, it doesn't matter what they've been caught up in. God can regenerate them and save them. Transformation is possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. But let those be warned who continue to refuse God's word. All descents eventually come to an end. There is indeed a payday someday. God will have the final word and this time There will be no suppression of his truth. Couple things in closing. Several challenges. Again, I want to challenge you this morning to let Scripture shape your thinking. 
The church today has all but lost a Christian worldview. You and I must get back to a biblical worldview. Don't go to Hollywood. Don't go to Washington. Don't go to the magazines on the grocery store shelves to get your ideas of what ought to be or ought not to be. Go to God's Word. And I want to ask you this morning in your own heart to make a commitment to do that. Go to God's Word. Secondly, if you know a homosexual or a lesbian, don't shun them. Don't hate them. You can love them while making the truth of God known. Communicate to them. You don't have some personal vendetta against them. You're only trying with God's help to be faithful to God's word. Let them know if they, want, if they need to call upon you at some point in their lives, you'll do everything you can to help them. And when you're around them, don't browbeat them. Share your testimony with them. Share the gospel with them. 